This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. That is hammered. Oh, my. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. You know, anything travels that far ought to have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? This is a simple game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. You got it! You're listening to The Roundtable with Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, and Mark Carrig on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 31 of The Roundtable. I'm Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy McCullough. No Mark Carrig today. It's just the Grant and Andy show. Andy, how are you doing? Grant, if I was any better, I'd be you. Yeah, yeah, I guess you would. I guess you would. You'd be... <laughs> no, I'm fine, man. We're, you know, World Series, rain out last night, uh, you know, so everyone has to change their flights and stuff. That's the that's the stuff that the fans don't understand, Grant, is how this affects my flights. That's the thing that the readers just don't get. No, I mean, it's... It's all good. It's a bummer. Uh, is there a way? How much do you think it costs to put a roof on a stadium? Uh, listen, man, you know the right people. You get some tarps. You get a uh, little, little. I don't know. Like, yeah, it could, it could work. I mean, look at the circus. The circus, like, puts up tents and takes them down. And then they're on to the next city. It's just, this isn't rocket science. <laughs> I just, if we just had a roof in every stadium, I think... Everyone will be happier, but what are you going to do? Yeah, no, do? no. So you are in uh, Philadelphia right now. Did you did the did the weather uh, affect you getting in or getting out of Houston or you just? No, no. It it just it started raining last night. That's all. You know, it's so it was perfectly fine. The off day was fine. It's going to be nice today. It just you know just rained like it started raining last night at about seven p.m. and then rained until like you know, 10 or 11. I don't know. I was in bed by 10, so who can say? But uh, but yeah. I have told this story on this podcast. I've told it on other podcasts. It's still one of my favorite freaking stories is the story of me meeting you in, in the Houston <laughs> airport after game five of the 2017 five, yeah. World Series, which was a bananas game. And I'm sure you filed at like three or four in the morning and I filed at three and four in the morning. But you literally did not know who you were, where you were. You didn't know the price of a gallon of milk. You were just as out of it as anyone I'd ever seen. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was uh, George H.W. Bush in that debate where Bill Clinton stood up and walked over and said, I feel your pain. Like, I was the guy who was just sitting there being like, what? I was checking my watch. I was doing all the bad debate jokes. I don't know. I was tired, man. Yeah, that was that was fun. I think I remember you and Bags both did an episode where it was just all about how you both met me at airports and I was a jerk both times, which was just like, I was just like, what the heck? Jerk wasn't the word. I never used jerk. It was just uh, not yourself, just out of it, just uh, a, a lesser human. I don't cover a ton of games anymore. I didn't really have this excuse back in 2017, but I, I don't write about the results of games as often as I used to, definitely as I didn't when I was a beat writer. So I am just not accustomed to 
being awake that late at night and having to think critically. And so like writing at midnight, writing at one in the morning, you know, like trying to ask questions in a way that like are, are probing and not just being like, what, uh, what, uh, happened out there, <laughs> you know, like it is more draining, I think, than I remember. I, I was much more prepared for this sort of schedule when I was a beat writer now, you know, because compared to being like a, a national guy now, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. Like I, I wrote up every game of the wild card and uh, division series. And I was sort of curious, do I still have those uh, muscles? Can I still write late into the night uh, covering all this stuff? And the answer is, eh. Like it's yeah, it's not it's not of. as easy as it used to be, you know. I'm older; um, those right. muscles are a little atrophied, but I don't know. We get there, but no one wants. I gotta t- I gotta tell you, no one cares about us. No one. No, that's not true. They like us. They do. No, that's the thing. Yeah, they do. At least our, the people who actually listen. I don't know. Like we're not gonna get casual listeners anymore, so we might as well just talk to you know like Eric Steven and Mark Feinstein and all our big fans. <laughs> the fucking, anyway, the fucking casuals. All right, uh, yeah. let's talk about uh, the World, the World Series. Series. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the World Series. Okay. Yeah, that's going on. Okay. World Series is going on. Uh, That was a uh, dilly of a humdinger, game one. So I guess let's start there. I had my narrative written. I was just like, oh, the Astros are a good team, good for them, but they're overmatched. And it was so easy, but it was also boring. And then then now all of a sudden you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is postseason baseball. And uh, anything can happen, as they say. The Phillies, utterly ridiculous team. Bless their hearts. Like, I don't know. I mean, I try. You try. it feels like recency bias. I don't recall a team as preposterous as this group in terms of attitude, the way they play baseball, their sort of resilience. They're sort of just joie de vie that they have. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I spent a lot of time around the Yankees this year, uh, previous incarnations I'd spent a lot of time around the Dodgers and um, those clubs are a lot more buttoned up you know uh, a lot Uh, you don't see guys chucking frisbees around uh, you know during during the uh, pregame sort of stretch period there's not a batting group known as the daycare uh, which is all the younger <laughs> fellas, you know, you're not, they were taking, you know, Kyle Schwarber's leading around of early BP the other day where he was just DJing different Blink-182 songs. And they were like, he's like looking Mark Veerly and Mark Veerling intently in the eyes while singing, you know, stay together for the kids. <laughs> you know, Reese Hoskins is like impersonating Travis Barker when Anthem 2 comes on. Uh, they're just they're just different. You know, there's a sort of joyousness to them that you you just see that and then you have to extrapolate it to the way they play baseball, which is if you punch them in the face, they don't seem to recognize that it's happened. So like they get they go down five nothing three innings in in the World Series, and they're just like, okay, well, we'll just keep playing, you know, uh, and they come back and win, uh, you know, JT Realmuto takes a literal, you know, punch in the face not literal but like he gets a foul tip that just rocks his face uh an inning or two later he hits the game winning home run they're they're just a very resilient bunch but then you know looking to the next night right you are reminded why the astros won 106 games i mean they are just so deep they're so talented they do so many things well they can pitch as well as any team i've seen in the last you know 10 to 15 years um you know so it's just the advantage is still squarely 
in Houston's favor. But you see how the Phillies got here, right? You see how they did this. Right. And listen, you know that I know, like, I have tunnel vision and I actually don't know a lot about the sport or anything else that happened. So to me... The the Phillies remind me of the 2010 Giants, where you had the the Phillies. You had Roy Halladay, and you had well, we've got MVPs. There's Jimmy Rollins. We got MVP. We've got you know uh, uh, Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, and the Giants went in when uh, Cody Ross goes burr, and you know uh, <laughs> Brian Wilson. He's out there with a beard. Aubrey Huff. Before we knew how much of a weirdo he was, he's in a thong in the clubhouse, and it, it just felt like a, a Pat Burrell. I mean, it, it like dumb is not the right word. Like, dumb isn't the right word. I'm trying to find the right word. It's it's blithely oblivious or just like, they're like a, a wily coyote. Like, they haven't looked down off the cliff. They're over the cliff and they haven't held up the sign that says yipes. And they're just yeah. hanging out there defying <laughs> the laws of physics. But again, game two, like you said, if I had to pick one player to encapsulate the entire what the Astros are about, it's Framber Valdez. He is, uh, he was signed when he was, what, 21, which is not an age that you typically get your prospects from the Dominican. That means you were passed over when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Like, he had to develop a lot. And now he's uh, 28, and he's an all-star. He's a 200-inning pitcher. He's like a perfect pitcher as far as he knows what he's doing. He's he's a testament to their success more than anyone else. That's the guy that's like, yeah, that's why the Astros are where they are today. Kind of piggybacking off that, I had a kind of dumb idea for what I wanted to write about on Media Day, which is I went and asked all the Astros hitters which of the Astros pitchers they least wanted to face. I asked, talked to like seven or eight guys and basically got seven or eight answers, you know, which I think was trying to point, you know, which I was kind of hopeful would happen because I wanted to get at the depth of their staff. But talking about Valdez, he has such a heavy breaking ball and he throws it very hard. He doesn't totally know where it's going all the time. And he combines that with a really sharp curveball and they play great defense around him. They're well positioned and they're athletic around the infield. He fits in really well with what they do as a team. You know, they are very good at pitching. They're very good at throwing strikes. They're very good at missing bats, but they also play very good defense behind their guys because they have, you know, close to elite defenders at most positions um, around, this, especially the infield. You know, Jordan Alvarez obviously in left is a bit of an adventure, but that's neither here nor there. But like Bregman, Payne has been good. Altuve has always been good now that he kind of got over the weird yippy stuff he was dealing with. And, you know, Gurriel is a good fielder. And so they just hoover up ground balls, you know, all game. And Valdez crushed the Yankees. He was really good against the Phillies. I mean, and, you know, you're going to see his the series goes on, just the depth that the Astros have, it just really defaults in their favor. They, they're they they're just – Lance McCullers and Christian Javier starting games three and four. I mean, these guys are, these guys are really good. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. I was curious about the rainout, and I know that there were 700 different articles published about how the rainout affects pitching. But I didn't click on any of them. Uh, yeah, well, it's it, I meant to. How does it affect the pitching? So to, give me give me the bullet points and uh, the cliff notes before I, this podcast is actually being recorded. It helps the Phillies a little bit. Uh, it doesn't really affect the uh, Astros in a negative way. It helps the Phillies a little bit, and it allows them to buy a little bit more time for Zach Wheeler to come back on 
you know, get an extra day for game six. Wheeler has been one of their best pitchers. He and Aranola, obviously, throughout the season, he was dealing with some elbow soreness in August that he got shut down. He came back. His velo was pretty good, but he was kind of kept on a, on a pitch count. He seems pretty clearly to be compromised in some form or fashion, whether it's an actual injury or just soreness, tiredness, all whatever it is, you know, uh, and he was not particularly good in game two. So, this allows them to push him back a day. It also allows them to get Noah Syndergaard out of Game 3 and get Ranger Suarez into Game 3 and sets up the potential for Suarez to come back for Game 7 or potentially to be available, um, you know, out of the bullpen in between. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's it's just buys the Phillies a little bit of time, which, you know, they can use because they have a more limited number of guys um, I just want to make sure I have this right about who's going game four for the Phillies. Nola is going to go game four on regular rest, and that will set up Noah Syndergaard as the likely guy in game five. But five is basically going to be a bullpen-ish game, if that makes sense. Okay, it, when you're saying, when you're listing it like this, and I think it, it kind of encapsulates the postseason experience, where if you, t- before the season, if you say, uh, uh, who do you want for the 162-game season? Do you want uh, Christian Javier or Noah Syndergaard? And you go, okay, well, I'll probably pick Javier. That that seems right, like, over the long term. But if you're asking me to bet $10,000 on uh, one single baseball game and the starting pitchers are Christian Javier and Noah Syndergaard, well, I'm not betting, you know, that that would be silly because anything, those are two quality pitchers and anything can happen. And that makes me, like, you can hash all this out and give check marks to the pitching staff and, oh, you know, the Astros are the deeper, but maybe this is just the game where Syndergaard is brilliant through five and the bullpen holds court. I don't know. It's just hearing these names matched up together, it, it's, it's a postseason baseball, baby. Well, Grant, I have terrible news for you about what's happened to Noah Syndergaard since the last time you watched him pitch. He had Tommy John surgery, and uh, he does not throw the baseball particularly hard anymore. He's got that Um, sink. So, yeah, there's a reason they're kind of holding him out until game five. Like, he's he's actually, he's a perfectly fine regular season pitcher and that he's a, you know, quality sort of back-end type starter at this point. And I think the, the, uh, the hope, at least for him, Career-wise, is that he will, you know, get better. Uh, he'll as he regains some feel and gets more, gets further out from surgery. Um, you know, because he kind of hasn't pitched a ton since 2019. But if you're talking about like a single game, Javier is a significant, significantly better in the course of a single game because he's going to go five to six innings. He's going to miss a ton of bats. Uh, he's going to get a ton of pop-ups. Um, he has a really, you know, sneaky fastball that explodes on people and that no people do not like hitting against. Yeah. I mean, the, the significant advantage for the Astros is in the games that Nola and Wheeler do not start, you know, Ranger Suarez is a perfectly fine pitcher, but Lance McCullers is, a good bit better. Uh, it will be interesting though because McCullers did not look great against the Yankees. He's, you know, he's obviously he's coming back from arm issues. He got pushed back a day during the CS because he got conked on the elbow with a champagne bottle. It was it was kind of weird, yeah. And his stuff like did not look great. He has a weird mix. He doesn't really like throwing fastballs anymore. Um, but the Phillies specifically are a f- team that crushes fastballs, specifically at the top. Uh, end of their lineup, their elite guys. And so it, it, it'll it be interesting to see how that all plays out. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, McCullers is is outstanding when he's right, and Javier's outstanding when he's right. I'm just trying to to pump myself up to watch the rest of the series. Well, the reason to watch is because the Phillies have like Bryce Harper, and they have like no, uh, they have uh, you know Kyle Schwarber, and they have JT Real Muto and Reese Hoskins, and they don't care that they're facing <laughs> Justin Verlander. Although you know Justin Verlander in the World Series, you know whatever, but like they don't care that they're down five runs. I mean, these they, like dumb is the wrong word, but dumb is the word that that comes to mind. I mean, the play the other night where Schwarber. They get uh, a runner on. They're down the three runs, and Schwarber hits like a 400 foot foul ball, and you're just like, "Ooh, okay." And then the next one, he hits it 350 feet, and it's at the warning mm-hmm. track. And you're like, "This team is hilarious. Like, this is the funniest <laughs> team ever assembled. Like, they just they can't stop doing ridiculous things, even when they lose." They uh, put both cheeks into every swing. That's a, yeah. that's a Mike Krukoism. They have both <laughs> cheekers all the time. Yeah, the Phillies are are a hilarious team. We we pointed that out earlier. Like that was when they were losing, they were hilarious. When they're winning, they're even more hilarious. Um, I hate doing this, but I have to wonder. Uh, I have to put on my generic uh, baseball writer hat and wonder when Justin Verlander gets a reputation, when he deserves it. I don't think he deserves it necessarily as far as a World Series. Oh, you can't trust this guy. I think it's just a few things have happened and he was, you know, pretty good in one World Series. And okay, I'm not ready to go there yet. I almost want to blame Dusty Baker more because I think he should have been out of that game (laughs) earlier. And we would have a lot less Justin Verlander chatter. Well, I mean, uh, there's a couple things at work here. How do I phrase this? Yeah, I mean, you can – the way Dusty managed that game, it was definitely felt regular season-y, if that makes sense. Sort of like, you know, very much like, all right, well, we got to get him through five, you know. I don't think that's the worst idea. I think managers tend to get themselves in trouble when they are um, – They get twitchy. When they get twitch, yeah, when they kind of click buttons, you know, especially early in a series when, look, you want to win, you know, you want to win as every game, but like you also got to play your team. You got to, you know, you got to ride your guys. You can't drive them into the ground. So I sort of understand, hey, we got JV out there, you know, like maybe we'll, maybe we'll let him get through, you know, the fifth, right? It's not like he, you know, pushed him through the seventh or something like that. He wanted to get five from a starter, right? You know, probably should have taken him out at some point. But I think with Verlander, the reason there's not, Man, how do I frame this? The the reason there's not like a Kershaw-esque narrative about him is because he's not like a romantic figure. Like there are no Justin Verlander heads. Like (laughs) he's a good pitcher. He's been a great pitcher for quite some time. But like he just does not inspire – the level of feeling that Clayton Kershaw does. He's a was is he a lunch pail ace? Is it because he's uh, Detroit? I don't think he wears his failures as emotionally as Kershaw does when Kershaw has had his mis- because that's what you're asking, right? Is why are people that's that's what you're asking is why don't people talk about well? He, Kershaw's the only analog to this, right? Is a guy who has. Uh, struggled in the postseason, and there's a narrative about him. There's not a narrative about Max Scherzer, you know, who's had his has had bad starts in the postseason before. He's had great ones, obviously, and Verlander's had great ones, and Kershaw's had great ones, and Baumgartner's had great ones. They've all also had bad ones, you know. Same with John Lester, <clears throat> same with Walker Bueller, same with uh, everyone except Steven Strasburg. I'm pretty sure Strasburg's like the only guy who's, to my knowledge, has ever had like a, a not had a like a bad. Postseason, sorry. I, I'll have to look it up. But I'm trying to work my way through this. Um, <laughs> I will say that I, 
I, I grew up in the era Masahiro of, Tanaka. Masahiro Tanaka is another guy who's always good in the postseason. I, I grew up in the era of uh, Barry Bonds having the narrative. Guy can't produce in the postseason. Guy can't produce. And so, like, when I'm becoming a, a, a sentient baseball fan, that is uh, what I'm hearing. And, I, and I'm frustrated by it because I don't buy it. And I just don't buy that Justin Verlander is any way different other than being maybe 39 coming off Tommy John in uh, the seventh month of baseball, which he's already beyond expectations. He's already a freak and he's amazing. Maybe it's just a little much to count on him for that seventh month. I don't know. But I, I hate the idea that there could be a narrative, but I just wanted to ask, like, is it common for him? Like, almost exhaustedly. Yeah, but there's not a narrative because no one cares. Yeah, that's perfect. Hey, like, he just I'm doesn't, he does not inspire the level of devotion that's this is the argument we were making with kershaw scherzer verlander right when we were talking earlier in the year like i think verlander is going to end up with the best counting stats scherzer probably had the you know is going to have the longest sustained peak or whatever and kershaw is the one who actually makes you feel things you know because he has worn his he has so often in at least in his initial incarnation so often the dodgers went into the postseason as like, we need this yes, man to carry That's the us. difference. This is the man who will get us to, that will end the drought, who will do these things. And he shouldered that mantle in a way that Scherzer never has and that Verlander never has. And that's really not the responsibility of any of them. But like so often the Dodgers were presented as Clayton Kershaw and the Kershawettes, essentially. <laughs> And when he struggled in the postseason and because he wore his failures so obviously, he made very clear how much it hurt him to fail on that stage. And he's never shied away from how much it pained him, you know, like when you don't cut to the dugout after, you know, that uh, after that the fifth inning the other night and Justin Verlander's in there like holding his head in his hands, <laughs> you know, and like and that's fine. Like there's different ways to process defeat like it's not a it's not a criticism but he's just a less visually narratively compelling figure than kershaw and that's why there's no narrative because people just don't care as much we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. I think we got to the core of it where 
it was here come the Dodgers and Clayton Kershaw, and Kershaw's going to start in short rest, and Kershaw's going to he's going to be the guy, and if it gets to a game seven, maybe Kershaw comes out of the bullpen and it's Kershaw, 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 and Verlander's just he's been the guy, but even in uh, like twenty twelve, it's it's uh, Scherzer's on that team, Anibal Sanchez and and Verlander. I mean, that's a great pitching staff uh, surrounding him. So that that's an excellent that's an excellent point. And Verlander, Verlander started on short rest once in the postseason, you know, in 2019. Kershaw did it. And again, like, these are choices that players make, and these are they're different, you know, team situations. And Verlander is going to pitch for longer than Kershaw, and he's going to have better numbers. And, you know, he's already older and pitching at a level of stuff that Kershaw no longer can get to, I guess, because of some of the physical things that he chose to undertake earlier in his career. So, yeah, I mean, like, I guess it's possible Kershaw could be pitching at 39, but given that he's 34 right now, I would kind of bet against that. And, you know, Verlander says he wants to go to 45, and, like, I could see him getting pretty close. Yeah, you know, right. he looks really good. He's going to win the Cy Young, you know, but I just think the narrative is based on emotion and feeling and all those sort of things, and one of those characters produces a lot more, I think. I have another narrative picture for you that I just remember. David Price. Remember when David Price was like, yeah. this guy just, he was, he's bad in the, the LDS for every year for the Rays, and then he goes, and then he's struggling with Toronto. And then all of a sudden he goes to Boston. Not all of a sudden, but he goes to Boston. He's awesome. They win a World Series because narratives suck, and it's not real. No, I mean, I don't, I actually disagree with that. I mean, they are real. Like, they're not made up. Like, you are what your record says you are. Yeah, okay, so not... Not fake, but I don't necessarily want to attribute uh, past failures to something inherent in that pitcher's personality or talent level. It could just be wrong team, wrong time, uh, wrong feel for that day. Like, just didn't have it that day, as opposed to this says something about this pitcher and his mental makeup, his physical makeup. I hate that. I think we're we're arguing kind of slightly different right. things, right. I guess. Like, I don't assign mental weakness to players when I hear that. What, what bugs me is when a famous player fails in the postseason. It's like, you can't say like, well, that guy keeps sucking in the postseason, you know, because like, well, no, 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 that's not real. It's like, yes, it is. Like, okay. I, I've watched these games. <laughs> like, no, no, I, I, I covered them. Like, I'm not saying he's, like, a, you know, he's, like, mentally weak. Like, I'm not saying he can't handle the pressure. Here's what I'm telling you is that, you know, up until 2018, David Price stunk in the postseason. Yes. okay. And, like, that's not my fault that I'm looking at the numbers. <laughs> I'm not saying Justin Verlander can't win in the postseason. I'm telling you he's never won a World Series game. And he, you know, wasn't asked questions about it post-game. He took a few questions and then got off the podium. I believe Sports Illustrated tried to speak with him about it, and he declined the request or whatever. And it's like, okay, fine, whatever, dude. Like, I, not a big deal. No one – the thing about <laughs> – God, why do we always end up talking about the Royals and Kershaw on the spot? <laughs> I've already mentioned the Giants, man. It's your I turn. Wonder, I wonder why, yeah. <laughs> but, like, the thing about Kershaw is, like, he's the only person who could, like, lead a first-take segment talking about this like they're not on first take the next day like on ESPN talking about Justin Verlander's World Series drought because it's just like ah whatever you know he just doesn't inspire that level of devotion from people for whatever reason 
Could he sell those secrets to other players? Because that seems like a good spot to be in. To, to be super well compensated and super talented and no one cares when things go awry. Right. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's a good plan. And he seems like he's That's got a good it. Plan. All right, let's see. Uh, what else do you want? You want to preview? I mean, we've kind of previewed it. We can do the, the managerial roundup and then get out of here. Shorter episode. No mark. We got a game tonight. You know, we're, let's just... Let's keep it moving. Do any of these uh, managerial hirings, uh, one, are you aware of any of them? Uh, the Giants still have Gabe Kapler. Just wanted to let you know. He liked a tweet. Uh, I posted a picture of my Halloween costume, and he liked it. So, Oh, nice. We, what was it? Uh, I was Ruprecht from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, okay. So he's a, you know, he's a Steve Martin head. So uh, bless him. But yeah, no. Okay. I will. Let's see. Managerial hirings. Uh, oh, indeed.com. Um, that's, are they a sponsor? Have I read an indeed.com ad? Um, okay. Now I'll have to be specific MLB. I know that, uh, Matt Quat Quattraro, which brings up the point, like Q would be a great nickname for him, but, uh, the darn, Alas. the darn nutcases ruined <laughs> Q as a nickname. Terrible. Alas. Yeah. So he's, uh, we're going to have to move on. Can't call him Q. Uh, that will be a bit of a problem or it could lead to a huge, number of ticket sales in Kansas City. That's one way to look at it. It's like if they just market it as Q is here. Right. We're... And Kauffman Stadium's just packed and they're like, oh yes, MJ Melendez is gonna, you know, lead us to the promised land. Where anyway. the where the Royals go one, the Royals one go all. Royals all. Yeah, so Matt Quattraro uh was hired by the Royals. That is the most latest uh official Hiring, he comes from Tampa Bay. He'd been the bench coach uh, to Kevin Cash. He had also previously worked uh, with the uh, Cleveland Guardians on Terry Francona's staff. Um, so he, you know, comes highly recommended. You know, has had a lot of fans in the Tampa Bay organization. You know, was well liked in coming up through Cleveland. Uh, he's going to bring. You know, the idea with the Royals, right, and Dayton Moore being let go and Mike Matheny being fired is the they're going to you know try and move in a new direction, become more open to new ideas. Quattraro is believed to be the sort of guy who can bring some of those in. Um, I think that he also checks a box and that one of the big issues the Royals have been dealing with over the last couple of years since John Sherman took over is comparisons to the Cleveland Guardians, um, who are similar in terms of their spending habits. Sherman uh, had been a minority owner with the Guardians. There had been sort of complaints from above about the Royals' inability to replicate some of the Guardians' player development systems, specifically with pitching. You know, so that is... Uh, that checks a big box there. It sounds like there's been a couple reports out today, and we had been hearing, I guess, you know, that this was likely to happen, but unclear, that Pedro Grafal, the Royals bench coach, is going to go to the White Sox, um, which is an interesting hire. I think Grafal is the guy the Royals should have hired three years ago when they hired Mike Matheny, which is probably the best explanation for why he's not the Royals manager now. Um, they should have, you know, they sort of uh, biffed it on that one, but Grafal gets a chance to take a team that was pretty disappointing this year, you know, played below expectations um, and I think is uh, kind of in a weird place, but still has a lot of talent, um, you know, a lot to, you know, and is in a win now mode. So it's going to be, you know, a good test for Grafal. Skip Schumacher is now the manager of the Marlins. Good luck to everyone involved. Uh, and that's about it. 
Well, here's the thing. It's I. If you're a, a regular listener of this podcast, you know that we'll be talking about like uh, the Berlin Wall, and I'll go. You know, the Berlin Wall reminds me of the 2008 Giants, and that's <laughs> that's kind of my bit. And so I start talking about managers, and I completely the first one that comes to mind is Quattraro, and it's like Bruce Bochy is managing the Rangers. That's a he is. That's yeah. an impressive one. I uh, it, I first off, I like that the GM is taller than Bruce Bochy. I think that's the first thing or first time that's ever happened because Chris Young is a he's a big dude um but I just I think that's an interesting hire because he's uh older I don't think you can tell him uh you can't micromanage Bruce Bochy you don't hire Bruce Bochy to micromanage him and I think with Dusty Baker doing as well as he's doing with this kind of nouveau uh you know post moneyball kind of organization I think there is room for someone like Bochi, someone like Baker, who is not necessarily micromanaged, has a little bit of old school in him, has a little bit of goes with the gut, but also understands how the game is played now. I think, and this is not to denigrate Baker or Bochi, I mean, I think these are very different jobs, though. Dusty was brought in to give in a Cadillac and basically said, hey, keep this thing on the rails. You know, Also, <laughs> like... At the starting block, everyone's going to be screaming at you and you need to deal with it, right? Because it was true, a cheating true, scandal. True, true. So, like, Dusty was a, a good way, you know, like such a beloved figure that he He's like a was buffer. able to absorb. Yeah he, yeah, he was able to absorb some of that. And now it's like, all right, man, like, let's, you got this great team. Like, let's just let's keep it going. And he's done an excellent job doing that. You know, you can quibble with in-game tactics here and there. But, like, they won 106 games. They're three wins away from a World Series. Like, he's doing a good job. With the Rangers, it's sort of, you know, I remember after they signed Seager and Simeon last year, sort of being like, okay, that's half a billion dollars. Like, that's a pretty significant commitment. Who is their third best player? Uh, and, you know, it ended up being, I think, you know, Nathaniel Lowe, um, who was actually maybe better than both those guys. He apparently had a wonderful year. But, you know, it's just a – there's just a, a, a difference in – talent, you know, and so I, it seems like what the Rangers is trying to do, what Chris Young has always preached as a player, uh, and then moving into the executive ranks is culture, building a winning culture. And so they clearly see Brucci, Bruce Bochy <laughs> as a guy who can instill some of those principles. I don't look at the Rangers per se as a win now club. But they are definitely a win pretty soon club, and they're probably going to be regressive in free agency again this year. You know, they have still have a ton of money. They, you know, they're going to be in on Jacob Degrom. They're going to, uh, you know, be in and around the plate on all the big sort of guys. They will probably make another effort with Kershaw, but it sounds pretty likely Kershaw comes back to LA anyway. So. I just I, it seems more of like we're betting on Bruce Bochy to leave an imprint here that will extend beyond his tenure. That might be a little callous to Bochy, but I just don't foresee it. You know, you hire like Buck Showalter because it's like, hey, the Mets can win right now. You know, I don't know if the Rangers are at that point, um, but they might be in a year or two. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I don't listen. I don't follow the farm systems of other teams that carefully. So I don't know if they have a wave, but I don't remember hearing that. I think I like they don't have a wave of like, oh, here come the here come the baby Rangers, I think. Okay, and did you have the same reaction when they signed uh, Simeon and Seeger, where it was sort of just like, huh, I don't think that's going to work. 
Well, it's not that it wasn't, it's not that I didn't think it was going to work per se. It was more like, oh, I thought you were going to do that next year. Okay. Mm, okay. Okay. And like, hey, like, you know, they signed the guys to long-term deals. Like, you know, might as might as well, you know, just bring them in now. If you like the player and you believe in the player, like, you know, go for it. Um, that's the Jason, those, Jason Worth, uh, Maglia Ordonez, yeah. like uh, that's that kind of gambit. Right. And and both of them, you know, Simeon was like was brutal uh, at the start of the year, but sort of, you know, got out of it. Both of those guys ended up being, you know, sort of four win players. Um, I think I think that's kind of where they're going to be. You know, Seeger did not with the power that maybe they had hoped for, but was still pretty good. And I think the idea with, you know, yeah, we're going to have tent poles. We're going to show that. For free agents, there's a reason to come here. We are serious, and we're going to show our young players how to play. They they like their young talent. They sort of believe in their guys. Uh, they've had some issues. You know, Jack Leiter was not particularly good last year, as I recall. Uh, I think Kumar Rocker had some uh, had a rough start to his pro career, but you know, these guys are you know, there's a lot of time. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely you don't hear about like a wave of guys coming per se, but also like I don't know how often I'm listening for that sort of stuff anymore. <laughs> you know, like I just I don't know. I just assume the Cardinals are always going to have good players who I've never heard of. And, you know, and, and the the Guardians will have good pitchers. And, you know, our, our friends with the Rays will continue bringing out the Deke McDeekersons of the world and, you know, getting into the playoffs every year. Yeah, the Rays will have some reliever who spits the ball out like Snoopy, and it has spin rate <laughs> 5,000. All right, uh, yeah. this has been episode 31 of the Roundtable, a little bit truncated Roundtable, uh, just to get this up and out before World Series Game 3. So uh, thank you for listening. We will be back next week. Uh, is there a chance that the World Series will still be going on by next Tuesday? It'll be over. All right, we'll have takes. We'll have thoughts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Bye.